well, shit. Okay. I am not going to sit in bed and waste the next five months when I could die when it's like my seventh surgery. And so I went on online dating and my only mission was to sleep with as many people as I could and write about it and to explore men and give women confidence with disability and sexuality. My family thought I was off my rocker. My friends were like, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I don't really care. I could die. I'm going to be in bed for another six months after this surgery where I can't even get up. So I would stuff my little wound with some gauze. I would take off all of the machines on me and I would go on dates. <laughs> and then by the third one, because I would date or hang out with three or four guys <laughs> at a time, I would pack my wound. And on the third date, I'd say, this is the underwear date. And on the underwear date, I'd have my caregiver, my mom put me in sexy lingerie and tape up my catheter on my belly. So it wasn't like flying around and I would have sex with these gentlemen. Hi, I'm Talia and welcome to the Rebel Love Podcast, where each week I'll bring you a new episode exploring love, sex, relationships, and money. Join me as together we question, explore, and strive to understand. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Love Podcast. Today, my guest is Ali Ingersoll, a day trader, consultant, disability advocate, writer, blogger, editor, and public speaker. She started her advocacy mission after being repeatedly denied medical necessary equipment by insurance companies over the last 10 years since becoming a C6 quadriplegic and full-time wheelchair user after a shallow water diving accident. Welcome, Ali. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Talia. I'm really excited about this call. We had a really great intro call um, a few weeks ago and yeah, super. Um, yeah, we did. Super we excited. connected, like two peas in a pod. <laughs> we did. It was very easy. Sometimes I just already feel like I know someone. So um, before we get started, I'd like it if you could share a little bit about your story and let us know how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I am old. I was injured in a, a shallow water diving accident at my home in the Bahamas in 2010, leaving me a C6 quadriplegic. And for those of you that don't know, um, I am paralyzed from the chest down, from the boobs down, my hands are paralyzed, and then I have some upper body movement. Um, and so I am fully dependent on other people to help take care of me. And I had a really wacky upbringing where I have a German mother and an English father. So I grew up all around the world in Asia and Europe and the East Coast and the Bahamas. And so I had a very unique perspective about being very culturally sensitive and understanding uh, people from around the world. And I always did things for the story. So I had a very great, I had a lot of crazy adventures um, from going to jail in China when I was 17 to living in the outback in Australia for wilderness survival trips. So I always had an adventurous spirit. So when I broke my neck at 27, I probably lived about like 10 lives and I probably should have died several times. I'm like the cat with 25 lives. And so, you know, when I broke my neck, my dad said to me, listen, kid, you broke your body and not your brain. So get to work. So I have a very supportive family. So they never let my spinal cord injury stand in the way of my success in pursuing life and my career and love, which was amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally amazing that you have that support. Um, but before we go any further, tell us about how you ended up in jail. <laughs> what was that? You just like, we well, passed that. I was like, hang on. <laughs> I graduated um, high school when I was younger. Cause I spent much of my time in Europe and um, in high school, the, the school systems in the United States are a little bit subpar to that in Europe. 
And so I decided I really just wanted to be able to drink legally for college. That, that was my only motivation. So I deferred from university for a few years and I closed my eyes and I spun one of those globes and my finger landed on Beijing. And I said, you know what? I'm going to Beijing. And my parents said, okay, kid, but you're on your own for a few years. So I ended up going over there and um, learning the language and wow. um, being a food taster for a newspaper and teaching English and traveling the country. And I started taking kickboxing and it was an Italian kickboxing instructor. And I was in love with him and he was 10 years older than I was. And he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Chinese. So we had the language of love to get us by, but that only gets you so far. Eventually yeah. you have to speak to the person you're dating. And so we dated for a while. We um, took a trip up to Northern China, which is called an ice city. They literally made a city out of ice for tourists. It's negative wow. 37 Fahrenheit. I'm not quite sure what that is in Celsius. And, um, he forgot my passport. And at that time in 2001, you there were no ATMs, So they wouldn't let me pay the hotel bill without a passport and a credit card. So they threw us in jail wow. for about a week. Yes. A week. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. That So you, you did end up learning the language though. That's so easy. I did. You know, I would like to say I learned it like in a classroom setting, but I drank a lot and I kickboxed in bars and I bargained <laughs> in the streets for fake Gucci. And that's the best way to learn. You have no inhibitions at that age. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. It does sound like you had a really active life. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. And my and parents trusted me. So they said, call me if you're not out in a week. And I figure out how to get myself out of jail. So we were okay. Yeah. It sounds like you've got really sick parents. I do. I have incredible parents. Yeah. Okay. So so let's let's flash forward to 27. You had you had your accident and then what happened? And I have to say I did read your blog and you've actually got a you go blow by blow through the whole event. Somebody caught my yeah accident on camera blow by blow. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it, I have to say it was it was quite confronting to read it and it, you know I was like whoa, you know we're the same age as well. It was just kind of really confronting to see that yeah. and the the images. And you said that you didn't find out about the images of the accident until like six months. Not later. until six years later, a friend of the family later. said, "Yeah, said that we have um, the images, and they thought it would be emotionally terrifying to me, but it wasn't. I thought it was really educational because every year I say, feet first, people do not dive." <laughs> yeah, there's actually a movie about that. I don't know if you know about um, a movie about that an Australian movie. Anyway. Oh, no, I don't. With Tony Collette. There's a guy, Japanese man, oh, comes okay. and he dives into a pool in the outback and the whole movie's about it. So I'll tell you about that later, but <laughs> I don't know the name of it. Um, okay, so what? It, so you had your accident and then what happened? Um, I was in rehab for several months and I developed a lot of medical complications. And the challenge with the U.S. health care is they just try to get you out of the hospital and they don't really care about your quality of life. I mean, that's just, you get two months and you're out. But my family was amazing. They set up a whole place for me that's accessible in Miami from the Bahamas. I used to live in Miami for a long time. And I started rehab and all of these therapies. And um, I kept, I was day trading at the time. So, you know, that was my career. I was learning how to day trade. I was working in politics in my twenties and I wanted to be independent. And so I had a whole computer set up and every day was for like two straight years. It was focused on eight hours of rehab and trading. And I didn't have much of a life. It was kind of, I was in medical hell, as they say. Mm. 
Wow. And yeah, that must've been horrible dealing with the hospitals, just trying to get you out and not really caring about you. No, but fortunately we have a family and we weren't, you know, financially struggling, which a lot of people do. We were able to get the rehab we need. So people ask me why I don't complain about anything. I'm like, well, I, I can't because so there's someone that my dad said, there's always someone that has it worse than you and better than you. So you can sit there and choose to be miserable or choose to be happy. It's your choice. Mm, yeah. Yeah. How have you kept, because every time I speak to you and just everything that I've heard you say on your blog, you just do seem like you have this really positive attitude, which I guess I get that a lot. And yeah. <laughs> sometimes I don't know why I was like that before the accident. I don't think the accident changed my personality whatsoever. It gave me a lot more drive. And I spent so many years of it spent five straight years of my accident going from medical disaster to disaster, which even took me to China for spinal surgery. And so I was living in battle mode. So you don't have time to think about your emotions or feel sorry for yourself. So it took me many years before I sat down to really deal with my accident and like what had happened to me. And that, you know, I always say, it's okay to grieve. You have to go through grief because a piece of you literally died, you Mm -hmm. know, the freedom and the independence died. So you have to sit with that for a while. And it still comes back. You never get over that. You know, I, nobody ever wants to be in a wheelchair. People that say, oh no, my life is so much better. I mean, there may be aspects, but come on, would do you really not want to walk again? I mean, that that's just crazy. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say that. Have, have you heard people say, oh, I've heard it a lot in my spinal cord groups. They're like, my life is so much better after my accident. And I'm like, really? You like somebody to like help you go to the bathroom and put your fingers and hands and places that nobody should ever want to have that really, but yeah, yeah each to his own. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about your, uh, your surgery in China. What happened with that? What was the situation? And yeah, a couple of years after that? my accident, I developed a massive um, cyst in my spinal cord, which was ascending upwards, which was, um, affecting my respiratory system. And I was starting to lose function, but the MRIs were a little bit fuzzy and no surgeon in the U S would touch me. So my dad traveled around the world and ended up in China with a group of Swedish scientists at the People's Liberation Army of China. And because there's just 1.6 billion people in China, more people physically break their neck a year than they Mm. do in the U.S. So they're brilliant at these surgeries. Um, And so my dad said, hey, kid, you've lived in China. You speak the language. How would you like to move back to China so they can slice and dice you? And they have this rehab program afterwards as well. And I said, sure. I have nothing to lose. Why not? So we, we, it was like a military mission of family planning. We got me over there, 30 hour journey. They almost killed me, but saved me at the same time. It was the best and worst experience of my life moving over there. So, you know, I woke up with, um, with spinal surgery. They, they don't believe in um, pain management in China. They, they think you should just kind of suck it up. It's a cultural thing. So I woke up intubated with ibuprofen. Oh my gosh. No. And my brother just lost it. And they, they they're like, well, we don't know morphine protocols. So I, they overdosed me on morphine multiple times. So I had spiders crawling down the walls and then they broke my leg in multiple places and didn't want to admit it. So I spent months in bed with a neck brace and broken bones. And so I became, that was challenging. I became very suicidal, but how do I say this practically suicidal? I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but I was like, I am not who I am. I can't make a sentence. I can't think. I told my family, I don't want to live. If this is continues for a year, these are my plans. I want to be respectful, but you need to be respectful that this is my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what was your family's response to that? 
half of them were like, no kid, you'll get over. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But my mom who's in the trenches with me, she saw the pain. I mean, I had, um, when you feel pain, um, when you're paralyzed, you have high blood pressure and sweating and nerve pain. It's like every day you look at me, but I have, um, 24, seven hour, um, burning pins and needles in my whole body from where I'm paralyzed. So I wake up with a seven out of 10 and I go to bed with like a 10 out of 10 pain level. It literally feels like someone is like slicing me all the time. And at that time, when you have an injury, it was so much worse. And I just couldn't even make a coherent sentence. So it was really, really challenging. Wow. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, like the no medication. I can't believe that that's the regular protocol. Right. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of cultural differences. So, you know, in China, they just, you know, with pain, you just suck it up and you don't talk about it. And I don't think they value human life as much as they do in, you know, first world countries. Wow. Ugh. That must have been incredibly, besides the pain, it must have been incredibly terrifying as well. Like, you know, when I look back to it, I think the brain has an amazing way to protect itself from pain, physical and mental. So I have this amazing ability to compartmentalize. My therapist tells me that's great. It's good and bad. <laughs> you know, she goes, you have a great way to compartmentalize in a healthy, positive way, but you're, it's just your brain's way of protecting itself. Mm, wow. So besides the physical restrictions, what have been some other major changes that Alice's kind of might not consider after an accident like this? I would say what's a lot harder than spinal cord injury is being dependent on another human being. So I can't go to the bathroom on my own or get dressed on my own or shower on my own. So I have to have caregivers or my husband or my mom, somebody has to help me all the time. I have to have 24 seven hour care. So my privacy, it just basically went out the window and you know I have had people around me all the time. And then having to work around other people's schedules and personalities. So I have been told I have the patience of a saint because I don't raise my voice. I don't get frustrated. If I get really anxious or mad, my, my pain goes up and everything just kind of my world stops. So I've had to learn to balance, have to every day, multiple personalities at the same time to make sure people are happy and healthy because if people are frustrated with you or the situation or the environment that they're working in or, or helping you in, then they don't really have this desire to help you. So you have to, I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but you have to compromise some of your, I feel like some of my soul sometimes to um, other people to make sure they're happy. Oh, that's frustrating. I know that's the most challenging part. And honestly, I hate to say this, that never gets easier. Yeah. Um, and, um, and just having no time to yourself, that would, you know, so yeah, I go out for an hour. To, like I have some friends at my level and they, they want more, they're more independent. So they found a way where they don't have caregivers all the time, but I have so many medical challenges. I'm like princess in the pea. You look at me and I get a pressure sore, meaning like my skin can break down. And I've spent an entire year in bed looking at four walls with multiple surgeries before. So I am in that unfortunate category of the unlucky quadriplegic who needs somebody around me all the time. Mm -hmm. Even you talking about it sounds yeah. heavy. <laughs> I know, you know, it is heavy, but I don't know. I always find, like I live in the world of dark humor, right? I mean, I always find something to laugh about at the comical about this. Like, you know, I mean, this may be personal, but when you can't control your bladder and bowels, 
I mean, you can eat well and you can exercise and I do everything right. But just like when you have a tummy ache and I do, I have to have somebody help clean me up. And it's those moments in the middle of the night. I'm like, really, really, this is my life. But you just have to laugh about it. And I don't know where I find the strength to do that. I just do because otherwise I'd cry. Yeah. 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 Those are the choices really, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I want to like move a little bit into, I know that you're pretty open about talking about everything, which is pretty amazing, but, um, how, how's your dating life changed since your accident? I mean, also, sorry, before we we go into that, I know that there was like a lot, like you said, six years later, you found out about the, the photos of the accident. How long did it take you to kind of get back to a place where, you weren't having surgeries all the time and you weren't kind of, I mean, I know that you've always got care, but you were able to do some of the things that you did before the accident. Six years. Right. Yep. Six years of straight medical challenges. But even in between those medical challenges, I still did things. I just had to do them a lot more cautiously. Right. And the dating, how did you get into the dating? Well, um, so before my accident, (laughs) I have always been very open sexually and there are probably not so nice names with the way I approach my dating life (laughs) in that I just always, I never was into relationships. I had them, but I was just very sexually open and growing up in Europe, it was okay to have sex with whoever you wanted. There was no stigma about how many people you slept with. Like there are here in the United States and traveling around the world, I would meet men and I'd have casual sex and I'd have a great time. And so I was always very sexually open. So when I had my accident, it was devastating to me. I didn't think about it critically at first because after my accident, I gained 40 pounds. I had holes in my butt. I had tubes coming out of all parts of me. And so I really felt like I became asexual and I didn't even think about it. And um, until I moved back from China um, in 2015 to Raleigh, North Carolina, I, um, it was just out of my mind and I literally, I'm the kind of person I woke up one day and when I decide I'm going to do something, I just do it. I will not stop until I achieve my goal. And so I went on online dating and that lasted about a week, but then one of my friends introduced me to a nice guy here in Raleigh and I, he, he fell in love. He was he's such a nice guy, but he fell in love with me in like two weeks. And I said, well, great, let's have sex. Cause I haven't done that since my accident. I wanted to pop my virgin, um, my, my virgin spinal uh, cord injury cherry, so to speak, that ended up in complete freaking disaster. <laughs> I thought I was Barbie because I'm paralyzed and I could bend my body in every way. It turns out your body should not bend that far. My legs <laughs> behind my head. And I, I'll, next day, my blood pressure skyrocketing. I thought I was dying. I went to the ER. They oh, couldn't no. find anything wrong with me at first. They sent me home. I went back. And they're like, what changed in your life? I'm like, well, I just had sex. And they're like, well, okay, well, how, how did you have sex? <laughs> and the resident is laughing and the nurses are laughing, probably inappropriate. And they did a, um, an x-ray of my um, pelvis area and I broke my tailbone. Oh my so gosh. My, I only knew this guy for like two weeks. And I thought for sure he'd be like, I am out of here. But he came back every day while I was healing. Of course. So that was my first... 
that was my first sexual experience. Um, and then we broke up because I developed a major pressure sore on my tailbone, which a pressure sore is like a bed sore. And when you can't feel your skin and your skin is dying, you can, you know, it can open up from like a little cut all the way down to your bones. So I had the worst kind you could have, and I was going to be stuck in bed for better part of a year. And, um, I tried all these therapies and the surgeon told me about four or five months till you can get this major surgery to hopefully fix it permanently. And I said, well, shit. Okay. I am not going to sit in bed and waste the next five months when I could die when it's like my seventh surgery. And so I went on online dating and my only mission was to sleep with as many people as I could and write about it and to explore men and give women confidence with disability and sexuality. Um, my family thought I was off my rocker. My friends were like, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I don't really care. I could die. I'm going to be in bed for another six months after this surgery where I can't even get up. So I would stuff my little wound with some gauze. I would take off all, all of the machines on me and I would go on dates. <laughs> and then by the third one, I was, because I would do three or four guys, well, I would do, I would date or hang out with three or four guys <laughs> at a time. I would, um, just pack my wound. And on the third date, I'd say, this is the underwear date. And on the underwear date, I'd have my caregiver, my mom put me in sexual lingerie and, you know, like tape up my catheter on my belly. So it wasn't like flying around and I would have sex with these gentlemen. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I would write about, I write about it like wine. And that's how my website started. Actually the quirky quad it's blossomed is so much more than that, but that's where I got the idea. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> And my now husband was one of my gentleman callers. I know he hates that story, but it's true. <laughs> That's so cool. So um, and he probably won't like this part then. What number was your husband? I have no idea. I don't remember. <laughs> I, 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 I will probably never tell him. <laughs> how long ago? How long ago was that? How long have you been with your husband for? That was 2016. So we've been together, what, five years now or so? Got married in 2019. He was... I broke up with all the guys and I made a reason up and I tried to break up with him and he didn't want to break up. And I finally fessed up to why. And he said, well, there's only one thing I can think to do. And he asked to be my um, boyfriend because he didn't want to visit me in the ICU with flowers in the hospital without being official. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, this really sweet gentleman is known a quadriplegic for a month. Like, and I'm going, I'm going to be in bed for six months. What the hell is he thinking? But he said, we'll get to know each other the old fashioned way. So, you know, yeah, we had sex a few times, but for many, many months, he just came to visit me two to three times a week. And the specialized bed I was in with 400 staples in my butt and 600 stitches. And, you know, we hung out, we talked, you know, made out and all that fun stuff. That's so nice. That's so nice. I know. It's such, a, it's such a wacky story. That is a really wacky story. I really wasn't expecting that actually. <laughs> Nobody ever is. They're like, you did what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that goes in the theme of do it for the story because you never know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Yeah. I love right? your disability. Disability doesn't discriminate. That's yeah. why I'm so passionate about like finding for so many different issues and disability from employment and love, life, insurance is because all of us could join this club in a heartbeat, whether you're mm -hmm. born with that. And that's why I think it's so important to bring light to. So important. And when I was growing up, you know, we didn't see people with disability in the no. media. And now on Instagram, there are a lot of disability advocates. Over. Yeah, which is, which is great. Even um, in TV shows today. Yeah. Yep. Well, there's a lot more diversity in shows. It took 
It took long enough though, didn't it? Far out. I know. I know. Like seriously. I mean, we're, we're kind of just seeing it now, which is, you know, a bit shocking. But we're kind of an impatient society if you think about it, right? We were like here and now it's, it's thinking about it. Thousands of years, women and slaves, like every, there was no rights. There was no people fighting for it. Within mm-hmm. 100 to 120 years, we have come a long way as a society globally. So I think sometimes we get impatient, you know, things take time. Mm, they do take time. That, yeah, we're slow movers, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just going back to your, I love your your sex talks. <laughs> um, <laughs> in our previous talk, you mentioned having to retrain your brain um, to enjoy other forms of sexual pleasure. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when you, um, so all of your sexual nerves are wrapped around your tailbone. I don't know if you guys know that, but um, bladder, bowel, and sexual nerves. I mean, it, it, you know, it wasn't very cool of the design of whoever designed our bodies to do that. So if you have a spinal cord injury, no matter what level you are, even if you're very low and you can use your hands and everything, your sexual function is going to be impaired. So when I have sex, I can't feel it or have a standard orgasm like a able-bodied person can, but what is pleasure? What is pain? It's just a signal from the brain. That's all it is. And so you can retrain your brain to enjoy whether that's dealing with pain or sexual pleasure. So whether that's the ears or the neck, or when I, when I have sex, it used to feel, I get the, the nerve pain and be very painful, but through a lot of meditation and practice, (laughs) I turn that sensation into one that was like, I can't orgasm like I used to, but it's still pleasurable. It's like that feeling of like, you're almost orgasming, you know, but you're kind of just on the edge, but it feels wonderful. And a lot of foreplay and kissing and, and a lot and having that like connection with another person. So Mm. it's not just like diet and exercise take time. If you want to lose weight and be healthy, you have to be patient. But again, that goes back to people being impatient. Well, I want to feel this now, right now, you know? Yeah. 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 It comes back to your positive attitude as well of going, Uh okay, hang on. It's possible. It's possible to retrain this. Um, And the other thing as well, you know, all the things you were mentioning is like sex is so much more than just the physical. It's the intimacy. It's that closeness. It really is. And I don't know if that's more for women than men, but I mean, it's true. I mean, it's harder for women to have orgasms than it is for men. And a lot of that comes from feeling close with someone. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think there was some crazy stats on that, actually. Like women are able to make themselves orgasm with toys like 95% of the time. And, oh um, yeah, and with other women, like something like in the high fifties or sixties, and with men, like seven percent on the first time. And so it just no, that's know. true. Even before my accident, I mean, even with all the people I'd slept with, I definitely didn't orgasm with the most of the people. But from from yeah, masturbation and sexual toys, and you name it, a hundred percent of the time. Yeah, 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 me too. Yeah, and I don't know why we people don't talk about sexuality, especially in the United States. It's like you don't talk about sex, money, politics, and you know, it seems very odd to me. Mm, that's there. That's what we want to talk about here. <laughs> I mean, people even can't do the, even their private parts. Like, I mean, I hate to say it, like they call their vagina their flower. I'm like, why can't we say vagina? I don't yeah. understand what's wrong with that. I mean, that's that's a medical term, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of strange too. I, I actually, I, my friend was telling me uh, she she called her daughter's vagina her vagina in the bath, and her yeah. husband came up and and said something about it, and she's like why wouldn't I call it a vagina? Like, that's what it is. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. You don't want to confuse her. She's a child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me either personally. Okay. Let's tell, let's talk a little bit, bit more about your disability advocacy. 
Sorry. Yeah. So um, after I kind of settled down and medically settled down, and this is kind of 2016, 15, 16, when I moved to Raleigh, I kept getting denied medically necessary equipment from insurance from, I mean, honestly, a pressure relieving mattress, a shower chair, components of a power wheelchair, the system in the United States, while I appreciate we do have a system, unlike like countries like Africa, it is broken and it is really skewed towards hurting the people that need the system the most, people with mm. severe disabilities. And so after like repeated denials, I just got really pissed off. And I just started doing this for myself and learning, teaching myself how to write letters of medical necessity with peer review papers to back them up. And then every time I get a denial letter, that's just a starting negotiation point in my life. And then you go through the appeals process and finding the right team of doctors to just basically just sign off on what you write because you don't want to get them involved because I hate to say this, most of them don't care about you because you're just a number and they have so much on their caseload. And then I started writing about it and getting news attention and now helping other individuals. And then that morphed into, wow, I want to do more. So I started working with national organizations and writing for a lot of national magazines and then getting involved working with my um, North Carolina's governor's council to help people live in communities of their choice. And I'm on the board of a lot, a lot of local nonprofits. And then that has morphed into something totally new where I'm now in this and totally like I have a full-time job as a marketing analyst and a day trader. And I literally lead, like live and breathe diversity, equity, inclusion in my personal life and um, a lot of the nonprofit work. But I now want to work for the Googles and the Microsofts and the corporations of the world in diversity, equity, inclusion for disability inclusion, because there's so many studies out there now proven that hiring people with disabilities and companies, it reduces turnover. We're more creative problem solvers just due to the nature of everything we deal with. And mm -hmm. it actually like increases companies' revenues and growth. And so I'm on this new mission and I'm documenting it on trying to find a like professional job. So I have a wacky entrepreneurial career, but I don't have like a corporate career path. And so I want to prove to others that your disability is an advantage and it's not a disadvantage. And so I'm right in the middle of that right now. And so it's like, I need one company to see me and take a chance and realize she may not have the standard like certifications, but this chick can do it. So I'm trying to show people that you could definitely go out there and change the world if you put your mind to it and create a strategy. So there was a football coach, I believe, who said luck is the residue of design, right? So only people that strategically plan their lives are going to be the ones that get lucky, yeah. <laughs> except the ones that win the lottery occasionally. I, I don't know how they do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some studies to say that they lose it in the first two years anyway, because I don't know. Yes, because they yeah. don't have any financial planning. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I am really excited to hear the end of that story because I have no Me doubt too. with your attitude that you're going to. I'm in the middle of it. So I'm, I'm sure I'll get rejected a hundred times, but I'm so used to rejection and that's okay. And you just keep going and you move on. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. Make sure you definitely let me know how it goes. <laughs> I will um, follow up with you. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your trading. Um, were you doing that before your accident? Yes, I was. So I was working in politics and I wanted to live my life more independently. So I asked my dad what to do and he said, become a day trader. So I said, great. I quit my job. Two weeks later, I moved down to the Bahamas and I put myself through a 12,000 page training course. And when I finally graduated and I started to learn to trade, that's exactly when I broke my neck. 
but my dad was always really supportive and he helped me create an adaptive computer and just kept doing that. 12,000 page. So it was like, an, it was um, a lot. So I worked 12 hours a day. I have like a really, I have like an, I have the opposite of ADD. So I can just sit there for hours and not move. And there can be like a whole orchestra behind me and I can just sit there and focus. Wow. And I, because of my spinal cord injury, I have to get done in half the time, what most people take a full day to get done simply because for about four to five hours of my day is simply caregiving, dressing, bathing, bladder, bowel. And I, there's nothing I can do about that. So I have to be more efficient. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And with the care that you get, do you get to somewhat design what it looks like in terms of hours and stuff, or is it just working around their schedules? No, um, I do get to design that. The challenge I have is that everything I live off, people like, oh, well, you're not on government support because I don't qualify. But I'm like, you don't understand. Every dollar I make goes to paying out of pocket for my caregiving costs and my exorbitant health insurance costs. And so at the end of the day, there's really not a lot left over. And that's really challenging because, you know, the government has cutoffs on how much money you can make when to, in order to get hours for caregiving. And that's really challenging because they're like, okay, you make too much money, but you, at the end of the day, you're probably in the same situation as somebody with no money by the end of the year, because you're paying for it. So it's like, I'm fighting all, many of us are fighting tooth and nail to literally survive, which is just heartbreaking because in the United States, the government doesn't promote disability and working. They say they do, but they absolutely don't. Like if you're on a system called Medicare and Medicaid, which is, which is government support for a lot of different um, people that disadvantage and um, socioeconomically challenged individuals, they'll cut you off if you make over a certain amount, which is not a lot of money, like $1,100 a month. And versus in Europe, they have these amazing systems where they send people to these institutions and to learn vocational skills, they don't promote that in the U.S. Yeah, no. Oh it's my heartbreaking. Gosh. It is really heartbreaking. And I, I imagine there's so many people after they have an accident um, who are dealing with like there's so many layers to deal with, right? You're dealing with the grief. Well, that that's the thing. Yeah, you have to have a support system. So I make, I'm, I always say I would not be here without a support system. If you do not have it, think about Every day, you're just sometimes you're just trying to survive and fight with the government of how many catheters you can get a month. They're literally telling you how many times you can go pee in a day. It's outrageous. So, for a lot of people who have the ability to work, but they just physically can't because they're just trying to get through their day, and and that's that's it. Oh, that is, that I is, know. That's so. It's just infuriating too. It's just absolutely it infuriating. It makes me so pissed off. I mean, I, I put them in my spinal cord groups, and people live in fear. I just posted something else the other day. It's like living in fear. I just realized with my therapist the other day that apparently I suffer from PTSD as it relates to as it relates to fear of abandonment. But over like the last eleven years, I've had sixty something caregivers. Like when you find a great one, they're there for years if you're lucky enough. But when you don't, you may go through 10 in a few months. And I've had people, alcoholics, drug addicts, people push me out of bed, people pull my catheter, people leave me in the middle of the night. I mean, it's traumatic. So my fear of abandonment, it's real. I acknowledge it. I don't let it overtake my life, but it definitely affects me on subliminal levels for sure. Yeah, of course. Wow. Oh my gosh. I just feel like grateful that the your community's got you because- not everyone has the voice that you have. Like not everyone's as confident and has the support system that you have. And uh, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's such a gift because 
it is infuriating. I mean, it's even infuriating just hearing about it. Like, I know. And we're there for each other in the spinal cord injury community, but all we can do for a lot of each other say I'm there for you, if you want to talk, but none of us have the financial ability to help each other, which is what we all want to do, but we, we don't know how, and we can fight and we can advocate, but as you know, change takes time. Yeah. And you Constant basically time. need like lawyers, right? Constant lawyers. And so when you see, for example, a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement, you see all of these protests. Great. I love that you're protesting, you know, freedom of speech. And a lot of people with disabilities, we'd love to do the same thing. But coordinating to try to get out on the street in the middle of the day to, you know, that's insane. Just like when the ADA was passed in the 90s, a lot of it stemmed from there was an image of people in wheelchairs pulling themselves out of their wheelchairs up on the stairs up a Capitol Hill. I mean, that's the kind of like images, unfortunately, public opinion that really makes way for change. But it's hard to do that now. Oh, my gosh. That's, it's just so freaking infuriating. I know. I, I know. It just makes you mad. You're not sure what to do. You just have to keep fighting day by day. Yeah. Little wins. Yeah. Okay. Well, what can people, what can people who want to help, help? How can they help? Well, it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, whether you're in Australia or the United States or Europe, there are spinal cord injury or disability organizations left and right in every state, in every country, not all as well-formed as in the United States, I would say for sure. Mm -hmm. But you can get involved locally and nationally and ask what you do. Some of it can be really as easy as just, there are a lot of bills like that are trying to get passed in the United States, for example, from United Spinal Association. And you can just get the bill number and call your local or state senator and get your friends to sign a bill. It can be as simple as that. That doesn't take up time or you have to schedule an outing to get out of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, little, little baby steps for people that don't have the ability to take big ones. Okay. But those are big ones because there's strength in numbers. I mean, that's just a fact. Mm, okay. So things like petitions and getting people to sign those bills and. Mm-hmm. And then like reaching out to social media influencers in the disability world to, to use their power. Like I see a lot of disability influencers and I love their messages about empowerment and so forth. But then again, they're trying to make a living on social media, which I understand. So they're also beholden to their advertisers. So they're advertising laundry detergent or whatever it might be. And I hear that and I get that, but I, I feel like they could make a bigger push to create. They have the power and the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Social media is huge. If you have that influence, use it for good, not just for money. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, there's different thoughts on that. So I'm going to leave that one, to, you know, aside. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you had trading, but I guess if you didn't, if you don't have other online skills, if you're quite limited in like what jobs you can do, then I guess there's a bit of limitation there on the, you know, the amount of money, like social media influencers can make a lot of money, but they are, like you said, they are beholden for sure to the advertisers. Exactly. You can go in the United States, we have something called vocational rehab, where, you know, if you don't have a lot of money and you don't have jobs, you can learn a vocational school. They will send you back to school. They'll help you pay for a van. But I mean, it seems so simple, but a lot of people don't know a number to call, right? And so having those resources available and helping people. I do that a lot with the nonprofits I'm in. So it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ali, I feel like I could talk to you all night, but <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else before we wrap up? Is there anything else that um, you wanted to share or everything, anything like I haven't, I've forgotten to ask you? I don't think for, for God to ask me, I mean, I would, this message I take away, whether you're disabled or you're not is like being your own self-advocate. You have to be, you may have the most challenging day in the world, but if you're not going to stand up for yourself, 
you know, and you're, if you're going to choose to feel sorry for yourself, which we all do sometimes, nobody's going to care as much about you as you do about you. And so you have to make that conscious decision. Now, I respect when you have a mental disability or you're going through depression or you're going to anxiety. I've been there. It's hard to see beyond the forest and you can only see a couple trees in front of you, but just like finding somebody to help out and reach out. Like I mentor a lot of new quadriplegics who are seriously depressed and going through a lot of anxiety and they just want to hear somebody and they just want somebody to listen to them. So I would say more than anything, I, I am like huge on kindness. Be kind. There are so many shitty people out there that yeah. are rude for absolutely no reason and cut you off in traffic and like, don't hold the door for you at Starbucks. I'm like, come on, people just think, just be a little bit kinder to people and pay it forward. Right. Mm -hmm. If everybody just paid it forward just a little bit more, think about how much influence and change we could have. Yeah. And we just make somebody smile. I know you've got such a like beautiful infectious <laughs> energy attitude. We definitely, yeah, there's a lot to learn from this interview. Oh, one, actually one more question before we wrap up. I know we were talking about, um, there's two trains of thought on the PC way of talking about people with disability. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so there's first where some people like, well, right now the PC term is persons with disabilities. Um, a lot of people feel the term limits them in, saying, well, I'm not disabled like my body is, but my mind isn't. Um, I I get a little confused because I know you're not supposed to say handicapped anymore. Mm -hmm. And I thought disabled was appropriate, but now recently it's person with disabilities. I get a little confused. I, I understand where people are coming from. I don't get bogged down in the details because I'm trying to affect change and do so many things. But I do respect the fact that if you don't convey the right term to people, um, that people look at you a certain way. And like, for example, inspiration porn. I don't know if you've heard that term before no, uh, where actually. people, yeah, it's a huge thing. I just wrote an article on it for the Rotary club. Um, inspiration porn is where you call someone in a wheelchair an inspiration simply because they're in a wheelchair or they're disabled or whatever it may be. So I have people come up to me all the time and they're like, you are such an inspiration. I'm like, geez, I could be a really shitty person in your yeah. climbing inspiration, <laughs> but simply because of my disability. Now, I personally think I'm an inspiration because the amount of things that have to happen in a day and, and people's like hands on my body to just go to the grocery store, I find that inspirational, but I have a little quirky sense of humor about it. So I have to be a little bit careful not to offend anybody in yeah. the disability community. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely have a quirky sense of humor. I yeah. love it. And I love I love that you're so willing to share all the sex stories. Thank you for that. Oh, I know. I'm sure whoever listens to it, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be like, I'm fast forwarding through the orgasm part, but that no, is No, okay. this is a sex show. We love talking about sex. It's welcome. I do too. I love sex. I think it's great. Yeah. We should all do it. All should engage in it on a regular basis, whether it's I, with ourselves or another person. 100%. 100%. The world would be a better place if everybody had orgasm. I agree. I mean, oxytocin, serotonin, you know, happy people, you know, people that have sex are generally happier people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is very true. That is very mm -hmm. true. And when we don't have sex, we lose it. We lose it. So mm -hmm. we can, absolutely. we can have sex with ourselves too. So if we don't have a partner, oh, absolutely. You don't have to have a partner. You can totally have sex with yourself. That's no problem whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Don't feel sad about it. Ellie, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. It's been an thank absolute you. pleasure. You I've are, had a great time. Yes, you're definitely a joy to interview. <laughs> it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, so where can people uh, get in touch with you if they um, want to find out more or want to read your blog? 
Yeah. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. It's Ali Ingersoll, A-L-I uh, Ingersoll, or it's, it's also at Corky Quad. I have a website called thecorkyquad.com, Q-U-I-R-K-Y quad.com. People always spell that one wrong. I probably should have rethought that in the beginning when I made my website, but yep. So website, social media, LinkedIn, you can search my name and you'll find me everywhere. Beautiful. And for everyone listening, you can find all the links mentioned in this episode at rebellove.com forward slash EP39. Thank you again, Ali. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Rebel Love Podcast, the podcast about love, sex, relationships, and money. If you like this episode, please support us by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and find all the details of this episode and more at rebellove.com forward slash podcast. 